Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Kai-Fu Lee. Kai-Fu is chairman and CEO of Cinovation Ventures, the former president of Google China, and author of the New York Times bestseller, AI Superpowers. And we're here to talk about his new book, which will be released next week, AI 2041. Kai-Fu, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, Sam. It is great to have an opportunity to speak with you. I'm looking forward to digging in and talking more about the book. Uh, Before we do, though, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field of AI. Sure. I started uh, with my excitement in AI back in 1979 when I started my undergraduate at Columbia. I worked on natural language and vision at Columbia. And then I went to Carnegie Mellon for my PhD, at which I uh, developed the, uh, the first speaker independent speech recognition system based on machine learning, actually. Uh, so oh, wow. The earlier thesis in machine learning in 1988. I also developed a, uh, a computer program that beat the world's Othello champion. It was all in the 80s, very early years. After my graduation from uh, CMU, I taught there for two years, then I joined Apple and led uh, a lot of Apple's uh, AI, speech, natural language, um, and multimedia efforts. Later, I joined SGI and then Microsoft, where I started Microsoft Research Asia in Beijing in uh, 1998, which kind of became one of the best um, AI research labs in Asia. Later, I uh, joined Google and ran Google China for four years uh, between 2005 and 2009. We did do a little bit of work on AI, but mostly it was um, really developing uh, Google's presence in China. Mm -hmm. In 2009, I left Google and started my venture capital firm, uh, Sinovation Ventures. And at Sinovation Ventures, we invested in about 40 AI companies. We were about the earliest and probably invested in the most companies. We invested in about seven unicorns in AI alone and with a few more um, yet to come. So very excited to be in the era of AI. Uh, It um, was not so hot during much of my career, but Uh I'm glad to be able to catch the uh, recent wave and participate in it. Fantastic. Fantastic. So let's maybe jump into the book. The title is AI 2041. If you just read that, having heard nothing of the book, you might think that it's kind of a straight up your vision for AI in 2041, but and and to some degree that is the case. You're asking interesting questions on that time horizon, but there's a little bit of a twist. Tell yeah. us about that twist and the way the book is, you know, organized. Sure, <laughs> the twist is uh, we. I call this book scientific fiction because <laughs> I collaborated with a science fiction writer who wrote most of the book, probably three quarters. And Uh there are 10 stories. We call it the 10 visions of the future. I find that uh, the impact of AI is um, misunderstood by a lot of people. Some are too conservative, others are too optimistic, and others are just uh, naive and and some explanation I think would be helpful. 
AI will change our future and more people need to understand it. And having a, a fictional writer write it in terms of stories will make it all the more accessible to people. So the book is organized in 10 stories, each of which is um, told in a different, each of which takes a place in a different country and in a different industry. So we can see how AI will impact all countries and all industries. And then after each story, I write an analysis of the technologies embedded in the chapter, how they will progress and uh, what challenges they may bring and how we might solve them or what we, we should do now to deal with the externalities or potential challenges that uh, they bring about. So it's uh, 10 stories going from relatively simple uses of AI to extremely challenging and somewhat futuristic uses of AI. But in the whole set of 10 stories, I try to at least have a high degree of confidence like 80% or more, that this would work in the 10 to 20 year uh, time frame. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that when you talk to people, you get a range of reactions or perspectives on AI ranging from very conservative to over-optimistic. A lot of that has to do with the time horizon that you're thinking about. You chose 20 years as the kind of central time horizon for this book. Why is that? Because on the one hand, 20 years is pretty long. A lot can happen in 20 years. 20 years mm -hmm. ago, we didn't have the iPhone or the mobile internet. And mm -hmm. look how things have changed. So imagine 20 years ago, if someone were to write AI 2021, 20, it would be pretty interesting and fantastic 20 years ago. Yeah. If, if it accurately described today. So it's uh, long enough, futuristic enough, exciting enough, but not so long that we could hand wave and uh, say brain download is possible and uh, we become cyborgs or we, we're doing <laughs> teleportation or time travel. So we, we stay away from that. So, and also uh -huh. we, I factor in the, the time it takes to develop the research, to perfect it, to reduce the cost, to implement it, to productize it, to make it acceptable to the market and, and also to deal with potential legal regula regulatory and accountability issues. So some of the stories may look like, hey, we could almost do that today. But mm -hmm. there are a lot of other issues that come into play. Sure, sure. I think one of the things that challenges folks the most on this conservative optimistic from a, a, a mass perspective is autonomous driving. Do you have a story in the book that talks about autonomous driving? Yes, yes, of course. Can't uh, write the book <laughs> in 20 years without it. Of course, uh -huh. by then, L5 will have worked. Uh, it's kind uh -huh. of in transition. So I think that describes my view is that L5 is uh, quite challenging. And the path towards L5, as I described in the story, will be incremental. As we know, AI gets better with more deployment, with more data, with more learning. So Basically, L5 will be a series of increasingly more challenging environments, perhaps starting with fixed routes like uh, buses and then trucks on highways and then more and more cities. And that's kind of one path as more data experience is gathered. It will face still a lot of challenges even in 20 years. And one of the predictions I make is that uh, cities will have to modify some existing road infrastructure, for example, to separate 
very dangerous cross sections with pedestrians and cars so that there's no risk of a car hitting a pedestrian in the most likely uh, environments and crossroads in downtowns, uh, such as uh, happened with the Uber autonomous vehicle in, in, in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And, and also roads can be smart and essentially work symbiotically with uh, autonomous vehicles. And also I predict that there will still be environments in which AI will be lost and need a, need a backup driver. Yet we will need cars that are, have no steering wheel and really no place for a driver so they can be smaller, nimbler, talk to each other, and even avoiding accidents as they communicate their location and speed. And if you have a blown tire, you will tell cars around you. So I envision all of these uh, will happen. But one part of it that my, my partner Stanley, who wrote the science fiction stories, thought was interesting was what would be the life of a backup driver in that case? Because mm. if the car got into a natural disaster where the roads have disappeared and you have to fall back on natural instincts of a human driver to survive and navigate out of a incredibly dangerous zone, that obviously the passenger couldn't do it. There's no longer a steering wheel. So the solution mm-hmm. would have to be a remote center where super drivers jump in from one disaster to another, saving people's lives. And then the other interesting dramatic element is, well, what happens to the life of such a backup driver? Would it create so much stress that they can't live with themselves because they will be watching people die from day to day? So how would such an arrangement be made? So without giving away the story, that's kind of the dramatic element and the technical element weaved into a story. Mm-hmm. That last note about the drivers and their welfare and their life, even though we're talking about a scenario 20 years from now, that calls to mind the lives of folks that are working in like content moderation farms and centers today that are dealing with those kinds of issues. So I imagine that part of what you're trying to do is to point to future issues, but also tie them to contemporary issues as well. Yes, it's uh, and also there are other interesting dramatic elements. Um, for example, how do you recruit such a amazing drivers? So, mm-hmm. so part of the story is games are developed, and then winners of these games, sometimes teenagers, would be approached to see if they would be a backup driver. But of course, that's too much psychological burden for a young teenager to be put into the position of helping and saving lives. So is it uh, morally a problem to package a real job saving people's lives as a game and not disclose it to the teenager who happens to be the best backup driver that one can find? So we're saving lives with good purpose, but can you lie to a teenager who's uh, known to be saving lives, but also not fair to put a psychological burden for them to know they're saving and not saving lives every day. And do you tell them or don't you tell them? It's a moral uh, dilemma. And do you answer those questions or do you just raise them? <laughs> we, uh, we just raise them, but I think the endings of the stories give away how we feel, but mm-hmm. we don't want to. But, but I think it's an issue where reasonable people can and will disagree. So we don't presume that we know the right answer. But I think we need to be aware such challenges will come up. And the book is probably, for the people watching this podcast, the book is 
less about learning about technologies because you probably know most of what I have to say, but but thinking ahead about the externalities and implications that are up ahead and what we technologists can possibly do about it to educate people and also to develop solutions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One more question on the autonomous driving scenario. You mentioned that you fully expect and that the story presumes level five autonomy is in existence in 20 years. Does the book or your analysis project a degree of deployment or the degree to which it is in use at that time? Yes, yes. I think the presumption is that in developed countries, it's already popularly in use. And in countries that are proactively changing its transportation ecosystem, it gets deployed earlier. And that's part of the technological prediction and hypothesis. It's also predicting that developing countries and underdeveloped countries would need the help of developed countries to put this technology into place. So this story takes place in Sri Lanka. And in the story, Sri Lanka gets help from a Chinese technological company that is building a business out of helping developed countries move from not having autonomous to autonomous. And I think part of the implication is that large countries will continue to have more advanced AI to put into other countries. And another assumption is the world will move towards autonomy one tier at a time. And that I feel first tier of countries may have it in the 15-year time frame with Mm -hmm. other countries coming later 20 years plus. And Sri Lanka was chosen at the place because not all the roads are yet quite ready for autonomy with some Mm -hmm. very backward environments because it would not be reasonable to put that scenario in US or China where by then I think the infrastructure as well as the technology would perhaps have a very a more minimal use of backup drivers by 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard to talk about AI in the future without raising the question of jobs and job displacement. It's probably one of the issues around there in which there's the most concern when talking about the future use of AI. Do you take that up in one particular story in the book, or is this an, a, something that cuts across various stories? It cuts across all the stories. There are probably three stories in which uh, this uh, covers. The one that's squarely on the topic is a story called The Job Savior. And mm. it's a story that takes place uh, in the U.S. by watching phases and phases of routine jobs being taken over by AI a new profession arises called Job Reallocator. And Hmm. it's a company that would be funded either out of government funding, instead of paying social security or universal basic income, the company would take take the funding and basically solve the problem of retraining and redeploying workers whose jobs are being displaced by AI. And this company faces some significant challenges One is that AI is improving capability, so more and more routine jobs are being lost. People are being retrained, but three years later, losing job again. Another major challenge that it faces is that many entry jobs are being hollowed out because AI can do jobs of an entry-level accountant, entry-level architect, entry-level reporter, 
but how do you advance people's careers and maintain their motivation to grow and learn without having entry-level jobs? So it、mm-hmm. brings up the possibility of creating a virtual job in which the person thinks he or she is working, but perhaps is only training. It's more like a training wheels, not creating value to the economy, but the training. Will help point out people's individual talents, so they can be read out, redirected later. So again, a potentially a moral question of: Is it okay to let people work jobs which are not real, or maybe are real but could be done by AI? And then, how would the job reallocator deal with these challenges? So that's the more direct one. There is another one on education: Is how would AI be evolved? So that it helps young people hone their soft skills, skills like、uh, communication, teamwork, and human-to-human interaction, as well as train their creativity and critical thinking, which become all the more important because those are the skills AI cannot replace. And and also find the voice of each individual person. So that's kind of related to routine jobs being displaced. So people either have to. Find something AI cannot do, or do things that only humans can do, or find something the individual is good at. So that's another story. A third story has to do with human motivation. It's more of a utopian outcome where so much money is being generated in an era of plenitude, where not only does AI do our much of the routine work for us, but also The energy costs have come down with green energy, new materials. The cost of goods are reduced, and the meaning of money needs to evolve. So it asks the question: the work and money isn't just something to keep us busy, but it's kind of people's motivation and reason for living. So if routine jobs are largely gone, how do people remain motivated? So I think it pushes the question into: why do we live in this world? Perhaps it isn't just for work and pay, but also for self-actualization, finding what our lives are about, and、um, can those be be measured somehow? Can AI somehow measure whether we are improving ourselves, where we're happily growing, where we're creating more positive energy? Because as you move up the Maslow hierarchy, it's not just about subsistence and、um, not just about money for security. But also about love and empathy and companionship. So, can those things be measured? And can people have some kind of metric to improve a different metric than money and a different metric by job by spending their time, perhaps in sustainability, volunteer jobs, companionship,、mm-hmm. uh, as well as all the creative professional jobs? And it's an exploration of how. That could develop in a market、uh, in the country,、uh, in this case Australia, which is doing、okay. a pretty good job in energy efficient energy. That it might create、mm-hmm. enough of a small enough population to create、uh, and a lot of natural resources to create a the first science、uh, the first economy of where universal basic income plenitude and、uh, moving people to higher purpose might be explored as an experiment. Kind of the gamification of life purpose, in a sense. That's right. I mean, our life is a gamification now. I mean, money is a virtual. It's a silly virtual tool that keeps us、mm-hmm. 
in the rat race when it's, it's a fabricated human story. And we're playing a big game now in chasing fame and, and wealth. So I think we need to find another, which is perhaps uh, more motivating. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you know, hearing you talk about these, these stories and reflecting on the other ones. The book kind of walks this line between uh, presenting these potentially dystopic scenarios, kind of like Black Mirror-esque, but trying to pull out, I think, trying to pull out an optimistic note in the, for the most part. You know, to talk more about your, your broad perspective on the book. Are you kind of going into these stories looking specifically for the, the optimistic ending or does it vary? Do you have kind of different takes on where we'll go for different scenarios? Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Black Mirror. And if the book reviews would find this book to be similar to be Black Mirror, but more positive, there's nothing that would be, <laughs> please me more. Uh-huh. I, I think the Black Mirror does a great job describing possible dangers and they usually end up with bad endings, sometimes yeah. good ending. Uh, so, this, so this is our effort to try to also describe the challenges that could arise. And, but also, I want to go an extra step to say there could be a solution if only, right? If only we educated our kids differently. If only we regulated large companies in particular ways. If only we thought ahead about job displacement and provide the training if we deeply understand the meaning of uh, money and how we can gradually move towards a substitute. And I think probably six stories or so have a happy ending, and then Mm -hmm. three have an ambiguous ending, and one Mm -hmm. has a somewhat bad ending. So I'm I'm not Mm -hmm. uh, being naive to say all the problems Mm -hmm. will be hand-waved away and solved. So clearly there are challenges. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I think there's... Challenges with both the dystopic ending and the the utopian ending, the optimistic ending, and I think you almost want a you know not quite a, a choose your own adventure type of a story, but a, a story that where there's a branch that says what the dystopic ending could look like and what are some mm. of the levers that could put you in down that path. And also mm-hmm. presents the optimistic ending and what are some of the levers that would drive society towards a, an optimistic perspective. Do you take on any of that in your analysis of the, the various scenarios? I do. So in the chapter about autonomous weapons, it's mm-hmm. a story, it's an issue that I think a lot of people in the AI community feel the same way that the physics community felt about nuclear weapons and the chemistry community felt about chemical weapons and so on. Mm -hmm. So it is the clearest challenge that we face today because the cost of making an autonomous drone with face recognition that can kill an individual as an automated assassin, that has so many dangers because it lowers the cost for the terrorists without having to risk the terrorists' lives. Uh, and also, it's very hard to, to regulate because it's uh, not like nuclear weapons. There, the, the good and bad thing about nuclear weapons is there is a principle of assured mutual destruction. So people have a deterrent. Countries don't do it because they're afraid of retaliation and mutual destruction. But that isn't the case with autonomous weapons. So that one of the stories is about a uh, terrorist uh, modeled after the UNA bom- bomber 
and who decided to take revenge on a particular uh, group of people, in this case, the elites of the world, as is modeled after the, the, the Unabomber. So, um, Unabomber, Unabomber, sorry. So the story ends up with challenges of what happens when autonomous weapons are not regulated and the outcome is uh, a somewhat negative one and the world isn't destroyed, but it's still a somewhat negative one. He gets away with something. Of course, of course he's caught, but he creates, causes a lot of damage. So in the explanation section, I go into detail explaining the additional challenges of autonomous weapons compared to conventional weapons, compared to, as well as to nuclear weapons and why they really have to be regulated and what happens when you don't regulate it. And then I point out the challenges of regulating it because unlike nuclear weapons, you can't have UN go into a country and inspect uranium or nuclear facilities because someone can build this in their garage. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. regulation must take place. And I point out a few possible ways of regulating it, as well as um, most AI scientists believe that it should be uh, regulated. Several letters have been written. And also the consequences of uh, not not regulating it. So I think that describes uh, the both possible paths of a negative outcome. And that's an example where both paths are are explored. In a, a section like that, where you're talking about something that's a very clear and present danger, is there a concrete call to action for folks? Is that part of your perspective here to tell folks how to, um, you know, if this is the yeah. issue that they're most passionate about, where do they go? No, it's not a direct call to action, but I think uh-huh. it uh, hopefully removes all ambiguity. Arguments have been made that autonomous weapons are in the early phases of uh, development, so it's too early to regulate them. And I give counterexample on why that isn't the case. And also there are huge issues about how difficult it is to regulate it. But I also point out that we, uh, mankind, have managed to largely control and contain chemical weapons and biological weapons, which Mm -hmm. are potentially uh, equally difficult to uh, to track and regulate. So if we can do those, we should be able to do this one. So I think people can draw their own conclusions. Some are probably perhaps still not convinced by the argument, but I wanted to uh, to make the argument. Mm-hmm. I, I've often had these exchanges with folks where they kind of present this scenario of conscious AI that is belligerent in some way, kind of like Terminator type of example, or like a, a Nick Bostrom superintelligence that's potentially dangerous. And I, you know, I often will say that is something that is potentially out there in the future, but autonomous weapons are much more kind of clear and closer and, and concrete and scary for me personally than you know some AI that's acting on its own against uh, human interest. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree. That's why by absence, there is no singularity story in the book. There is Mm -hmm. no AI with self-consciousness, self-awareness that tries to destroy the human race in the story. So by its absence, um, I'm totally agreeing with that. In the analysis section, I do bring up the issue of singularity, of why I don't rule out its possibility in the future. But I think it's too simplistic to say the exponential growth of compute power 
also means an exponential growth that will drop the people behind. In many of the stories, we still see many parts of the human intelligence that cannot be replicated by AI. The fact that m- m- many stories are saved by the de- saved by the hero or heroine of the stories because of their emotional um, and beliefs and conviction and love, and that's something unique to people. And also in stories where there are villains who do terrible things, they're the ones who cause the disaster. Using AI as a tool, AI never mm-hmm. in these ten stories become the villain in itself. And, mm-hmm. and then I, I clearly explain that a singularity could happen when breakthroughs in algorithms enable fully taking advantage of the exponential growth. But today, we still have not had breakthroughs that understand how our brain works, uh, why we have self-awareness and emotion and creativity and can do analysis and strategic thinking. So to think we can replicate AI on something that we don't even know how we do it, nor do we see AI approaching it, and we know AI do not possess it. So we, we don't have to worry about extrapolating the exponential curve and seeing superintelligence and, or singularity within the next 20 years. That said, I do believe the set of things that AI can do better than human will grow uh, dramatically. And AI will do many things that humans cannot imagine to do, but there will always be a set that is about our core humanity, at least in a 20-year time frame, that we can hold on to. And it's exactly that set that defines our humanity that causes our, uh, the stories, the people in the stories to shine and save the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the exponential growth in compute, one of the stories touches on quantum computing. What's your take on where that is in 20 years and the, the degree to which it enables a more powerful artificial intelligence? Yeah, I think quantum is one of the um, areas where I needed to make a not 100% confident um, prediction, <laughs> right? Because there's too, too much Understandable. Variant and variability. <laughs> but I do think looking at the maps that IBM, Google, and other companies have, and the progress that's been made, particularly in the last two years, it seems like we can extrapolate a story where the improvements in logical qubits will reach thousands, probably less than 20 years. There are a lot of issues of how do you maintain stability and how many physical qubits do you need to support logical, a few thousand logical qubits. So um, I, I'm not an expert in the area, but the experts seem to agree. Several thousand qubits are possible, and there are useful uh, applications um, by that time, with the major one being in security. That is, the existing asymmetrical cryptography algorithms will no longer work. The flip side Mm -hmm. of that is quantum computing will provide a new unbreakable security uh, system. So in the story, I did not go into how quantum and AI work together because at a few thousand qubits, I don't think it's enough to disrupt AI completely yet. So mm-hmm. 20 years would be about when the security challenges would come up. So in one of the stories, the villain achieved 4,000 qubits uh, without anyone else knowing it. And the villain went after stealing bitcoins, which is the one commonly mm-hmm. uh, described the largest bank that's waiting to be robbed. So that mm-hmm. was a part of the story. 
But in the analysis, I do go into the uh, very nature of quantum that can hold uncertainty in its head and pursue paths in parallel and dramatically reducing the MP-complete search problem will lead to a day where AI algorithms will be uh, disrupted. But I don't think 20 years is quite when that will happen. It will probably Mm -hmm. take longer with more than 4,000 qubits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the book, of course, is focused on this 20-year forward time horizon, but there are a lot of AI technologies around which there are very contemporary issues in the realm of ethics, bias, and others. Computer vision is one that comes to mind. Facial recognition in particular, it's a very contemporary issue, the use of facial recognition by police organizations, the proliferation of cameras in quote-unquote smart cities. A lot of people look at the it would be easy to look at the situation now and the the frustration that many people have with the situation now and find it difficult to project forward 20 years. Do you do that in the book? I do not. Facial recognition is one I did not speculate because um, we're in a bifurcated world. Mm -hmm. Some countries are attempting to regulate it. Others are not. And um, it's it's not clear a bifurcated world can work. Hopefully we'll reach a uh, universal consensus at, at some point. I do go into many other aspects of externalities, and mm-hmm. I, I guess you can extrapolate from them to, 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 to all of the possibilities. So, for example, I talk about how objective functions need to be improved to go from maniacally focusing on something like click-throughs and revenue-generating, moving into longer-term metrics. So our social media in 20 years ought to be showing us content that is making us better over time, that we feel we're seeing content that is time well spent, as Tristan Harris would say, or we're seeing content that is making us improving in some metric. Maybe it's our wealth, maybe it's our happiness, maybe it's our how much knowledge we've gained, and whether AI Mm -hmm. objective functions can be turned more long-term and more aligned with humans. That's one aspect I explored. And I think technologists um, should spend more time on topics like that. Another is on bias and fairness. Can we ensure that, have tools that ensure that AI is being trained on reasonably balanced data so that it's not discriminating against any uh, race, gender, individual, etc.? And also, can compilers alert warnings right now? Can AI tools do the same? And also, can AI engineers be trained to be aware of the substantial power that they control and therefore the responsibilities that must come with it? So that's another aspect. Uh, Another one related to privacy and having our cake and eat it too. Can we have AI trained on a lot of data but not everybody giving away data privately without consent. So mm-hmm. the stories in the book talks about how technologies like federated learning, homomorphic encryptions, and also hardware environments that are self-contained where, where data does not leak, can these, te- these technologies, I predict, in 20 years, will be able to let us have our cake and eat it too, so that our data stays in devices to which we permit, say, our phone, our computer, or 
the computers at the hospital, which has our data, but not beyond that. So the models from a hospital is trained on all the patients in that hospital who license their data to the hospital, but not beyond. Then the hospitals can jointly train by pooling their models together. So in the book, I point out the technological areas that I think are promising and the possible technological solutions that could end up addressing many of the problems we see. And I think the call to action is for the technologists who read the book and watch the podcast to think about rather than doing research on the next deep learning or tweaking a particular model, is Mm -hmm. it useful for a sufficient percentage of the AI community to think about these technological solutions that solve the problems caused by our technology, AI? Mm-hmm. On that note, there are a number of labs focused on AI safety as a research focus. You know, often they take the perspective of trying to prevent the Terminator scenario or making sure that we can control the Terminator scenario. Do you have a perspective on, on those efforts? Are they asking the right questions, looking at the right things? Well, there are risks that are clear and present danger. I think Mm -hmm. those ought to be addressed by the largest number of people. Issues Mm -hmm. related to bias, fairness, how to have our cake and eat it too with respect to personal data. There are longer term, lower likelihood, existential questions that one could ask. And I think it makes perfect sense for a small number of uh, people in more like a think tank than a technology development to Mm -hmm. basically watch for that possibility and to alert for the rest of us. So yes, I do think those labs should continue to do what they do. I don't Mm -hmm. think those existential threats will happen in the next 20 years, but I think we, we should have think tanks that think about them and tell us when we really do need to get involved and worried. Mm -hmm. In the, Chapter on autonomous weapons, you call for regulation. You mention the objective function, and there are many contemporary calls for regulation of internet companies and advertising methods and and, privacy and and many other things for internet companies. How do you see regulation evolving over the next 20 years? Yeah, I, th- I think in the U.S., people talk the most about breaking up companies. I think that is uh, too brute force and too um, 20th century. It's not mm-hmm. something designed for this kind of uh, monopoly. I do think regulations are needed, but I think we need to come up with n- newer and better uh, regulations. And why do you think that's ineffective for modern companies? Well, let's say um, Facebook got broken up into WhatsApp Uh, dot com and instagram.com and facebook.com it doesn't Mm -hmm. stop any of it it wouldn't have stopped the cambridge analytica issue right it Mm -hmm. wouldn't stop any one of the three products doing things that we don't want them to do Uh, it would reduce it but it's it's too brute force it was specifically addressing monopoly extension right by you know standard oil moving into gas stations and stop um uh, yeah, and, and having the big bell company break broken up into baby bells. Um, I think those were perhaps appropriate for telecommunications or traditional industries. But I think the, the, the issue that is fundamental is um, 
I, th- I think people, the reason people go into such extreme measures is they've given up hope that some companies can self-manage. I've not given up hope, but I don't think today's reward and punishment systems give the large companies any incentive to self-manage, and those need to be created. For example, I think an idea called the AI audit is something that could be pursued, right? It's very clear Mm -hmm. that the government can't go in and look at the code and data for each of the large internet companies. But when there are sufficiently serious complaints and repetitions of complaints, there can be an audit, just like there can be a financial audit or a tax audit. So with that as a deterrent, I think companies can be better behaved. Of course, what are the metrics? How does a complaint count? Uh, Should the government get to look at the data in a large company? These are all issues that need to be solved. But it seems more, I think, a more plausible way than just breaking up companies and more effective. Another, uh, I think ultimately, we need to get companies to really have aligned financial incentives so that if they better behave. For example, can there be a third-party watchdog that publishes how much fake news, how much you know, false uh, advertising, how much wrong search results, or whatever things we have. If we have a third-party mm-hmm. watchdog that publishes those and enough consumer advocacy and uh, corporate ESG pressure for the companies to feel like every quarter they have to report not just the financial results, but how they do on the fake news metric, fake news mm-hmm. ranking, then they're going to form internal teams because they're being monitored from the outside. So that would be one example. But the, ideally, we want to somehow have companies that can make even more money by aligning themselves with user needs. So as users become happier or learn more information, or um, become wealthier or whatever those metrics, and it can somehow be attributed to companies that have created or helped enable that situation, then it, it can make even more money. So, so, so in other words, are we willing to pay a company a lot more money to make us more knowledgeable, wealthier, or happier in a three-year horizon compared to the money that the company would make us clicking and buying things? So looking at natural financially aligned metrics that connect the user and the the company this is a little bit abstract at right now but i was going to ask do you suggest any such metrics in the book i suspect the answer is no (laughs) no (laughs) well it's, it's just like you know 30 years ago would people have come up with the ways that facebook does advertising or google does uh adwords or adsense some smart entrepreneur will come up with some system that will create a new ecosystem that will uh, create a new set of companies that are even more profitable than Google and Facebook. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't know the answer, but entrepreneurs and VCs can take a step back and think about it. It's not so much out of the question, right? Because how do we measure people's happiness? Well, there are many metrics that can be used on our facial expressions, micro expressions, measures of our hormones endorphin, et cetera, that could be one beginning of such a way. Our, our wealth can be measured over time. And whether we've learned something and grown, 
I think just like, you know, GPT-3 today can remember millions of words that it's read and pick out the ones that are relevant for the given current context, perhaps there will be AI that can look at all of our time spent on the internet and pick out the epiphany moments that have caused us to grow. And those moments, if there is a software technology or objective function that enable the moment, they should be properly um, compensated for it. So I don't think it's out of the question. The technologies can be developed, but I don't know what the model is. If I did, I'd be uh, either funding or creating that company myself. I was just going to ask, was that part of your motivation for writing the book to kind of signal to entrepreneurs that, hey, these are areas that need to be explored. And if you are working in these areas, hey, reach out to to me. That's not the primary purpose, but um, (laughs) if that were a side effect, I would be happy to uh, look at those business plans. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kaifu, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and share a bit about the book. Congratulations on the book. It is really takes an interesting approach at raising some very important questions in the development of AI. So thanks and and congrats once again on that. Thank you. Thanks, Sam, for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.